And please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Or if you don't have your Bible with you, look in your bulletin insert. We will use this as a unison reading, beginning to read at verse 13. And while you're searching for that, I should have told you that Myra Reeves has been in uh, Piedmont Medical Center most of this week with pneumonia, but she seems to be responding to treatment, so we give uh, God thanks for that, and I know she would appreciate your keeping her in your prayers. Romans 4, beginning to read at verse 13. Let's read the Word of God together. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. In the Gospel of Luke, the 8th chapter, that's where we can read the story of Jairus, who is a a ruler of a synagogue, whose 12-year-old daughter is dying. And so he comes into the midst of this crowd of people around Jesus and implores Jesus to come and heal his daughter who's at the point of death. And Jesus agrees. But as he's going, we're told the people were pressing in around them. People were everywhere wanting to touch Jesus, wanting to hear Jesus speak, wanting to have Jesus touch them and heal them. Do you imagine what it's like trying to make forward progress with a hundred or maybe hundreds of people trying to press in around you? 
And just for a moment, I want us to put ourselves in the place of this dying girl's father. She was dying. Every minute that passed means it was a minute that much closer to her death. You know, it's a terrible thing when we know we need help and it seems like we're never getting that help. I can still remember when I was just a little boy in a Sunday evening service at my home church and a few pews down in front of us, a lady's head all of a sudden slumped over. She was having a heart attack at the time. We didn't know that, but she was having a heart attack. And unlike this congregation where if someone slumps over, there are all kinds of doctors rushing to help. We didn't have any doctors in our congregation. And not only that, we were a rural church way out in western Idle County in North Carolina. And back in those days, where were the ambulances? They were at the hospitals. And the hospitals were in town, some 20 to 25 minutes away. And it seemed like it took that ambulance forever to get there that night. She lived by God's grace, but it wasn't because she received immediate medical attention. It was taking too long to get there. And as Jesus is trying to make His way to this man's house. This is where the woman who's been suffering from bleeding for 12 years comes up and she has the kind of faith that if I can just touch the edge of his clothes, I believe I'll be made well. And she touches the fringe of his clothing. And all of a sudden, Jesus knows that power has gone out from him. You know, he starts to ask his disciples, who touched me? And they're incredulous. I mean, there are people all around you. What do you mean, who touched you? I mean, it could have been one of these 20 right here. Now remember, you're this little girl's father. Here's another another interruption. How long is it going to take? Can't these people understand that my little girl is at the point of death? And we're told that while Jesus was still speaking to this woman, a man from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher any longer. But when Jesus heard this, He said, Don't be afraid, but believe, and she will be made well. Now, teacher or not, healer or not, how could anybody bring someone back from the dead? What would you have done? Would you have been able to believe in something that impossible? This is the kind of faith that Paul says Abraham had in our text this morning. We see it there in verse 18 and following. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, and when he considered the barrenness, it really says the deadness, of Sarah's womb. 
No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. But before we take a look at Abraham and his faith, let's just review just a moment to what has brought us to this point. In this fourth chapter of Romans, Paul's been using Abraham as an illustration for his argument that justification is by faith, not by works. And it was important for him to do this because the opponents of Paul, the Judaizing Christians, who would preach a gospel of salvation by faith, yes, but joined with salvation by works. They would preach both and they would also go to the book of Genesis to prove their point, except they would look at the early verses of Genesis 26, much later in Abraham's life, where God reiterates to Abraham all of his promises, your descendants shall be as, as, as numerous as the stars in the heavens, I'll give you land, your descendants will be a blessing to all the nations, and then God says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. He did what? What statutes? What laws? The law and the statutes, the commandments, wouldn't be given until the time of Moses, which Paul tells us in Galatians 3 is 430 years after the time of Abraham. Abraham did not have a law he could keep. But what Genesis 26 means is that by faith he obeyed God and lived for Him just as if he had commandments to follow. Remember in Hebrews 11, we're told that by faith, Abraham obeyed. Paul understood this argument of Genesis 26. He had been a Pharisee and and talked the talk and walked the walk of works righteousness, but Jesus had shown him how he was wrong. His theology had been flawed because of a misinterpretation of Scripture. So as we saw last week, to counter this kind of idea, Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6 much earlier in Abraham's life where Abraham believed God when God took him outside and said, Look up at the stars, number them. If you're able, so shall your descendants be. Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. And then Paul also quoted Psalm 32 in last week's passage, which gave further support to the effect that people are blessed by God not because they've earned something, but because God has given them something, which according to Psalm 32 is forgiveness. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul also made the point that chronologically speaking, Abraham's faith came before his circumcision. And since this was the case, faith is intended for the uncircumcised. That's good news for you and me, all of us who are Gentiles as opposed to Jews. And that's what Paul continues to argue in this passage before us today where he essentially makes three points about God's promise to Abraham. He reiterates that the promise is based on faith, 
not law. Secondly, because this promise is based on faith, it unites both Jews and Gentiles together into one people of the Lord. And finally, the faith which Abraham lived as he responded to God's promise was firm and unwavering. And you're probably thinking, if you were here last week, well, that sounds a lot like what we talked about last week. Paul, you know, plows a lot of the same ground over and over, as we would say back on the farm, but he adds things in as he plows. Now, we dealt with those first two points in last week's sermon, and we're going to deal with that argument more in depth in our Galatians study on Wednesday night. So today, I want us to spend our time on Abraham and his example of faith. As we think about this, we need to keep in mind the definition of faith that the book of Hebrews gives us at the beginning of chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not, what? Seen. That's right. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, while that's perhaps not the most comprehensive definition of faith, it's a very valuable way of looking at faith, especially when it comes to living our lives for God and with Him as God, meaning that He's in control, that He's really sovereign, like He says He is. It's valuable because so often you and I, we only want to live by sight. We don't want to live by faith. Now, we talk a lot about this in sermons, and we have to because you and I like to see You know, when we can see, then we feel like we're in some kind of control and we don't have to rely on God. We want to know where we're going. And many of us still want the elders or we still want the deacons or we still want women's ministries to do certain things, certain ways, so that we can see instead of living by faith. And why would we want to do that when the Bible has the opposite definition? Why would we want to do that when when the Apostle Paul assumes that the Christian lives by faith, as he puts it so clearly there in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, there are two ways of walking in the world. And you can walk by faith or you can walk by sight. But the Christian is to walk by faith. You know, the answer is we want to live by sight because it's easier. It's the path of least resistance. The very nature of living by faith is why Martin Luther says it's so difficult. With Hebrews 11 in mind, he says that faith is directed toward what a person does not see Indeed, the very opposite of what one perceives. And then Karl Barth comes along and he says something somewhat similar. Everything by which we're surrounded conflicts with the promise of God. Everything with which we're surrounded conflicts with the promise of God. And what he means by that is that God promises us immortality, doesn't it? 
life forevermore with Him in heaven. And yet, what are we around every day? Death and destruction. God pronounces that we're righteous in His sight. And yet, you and I both know we're, we're sinners. We're terrible sinners. Paul said he was the chief of sinners. And we're many times just like him. Luther goes on to say that we have doubts in our lives because when we reflect on God's promises, we begin to wonder whether God might change His mind and do something else. Do you ever wonder that? You know, God says certain things in His Word. Like, for example, if you truly confess your sins... God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what if God chooses not to forgive? I mean, what if I commit so, some sin that's so terrible that God would choose not to forgive? He would never do that, would He? That would be going against the nature of who God is. He remains faithful always. He carries out the truth of His Word. He keeps His promises. Luther states that behind the divine promise stands God's immutability, that is, His inability to change, both as regards His essence and His actions. In other words, He never changes in who he is. That's why Hebrews 13.8 reminds us He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the God in whom Abraham believed. And in verse 20, we see Paul's description. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. Now think about that visually. No distrust made him waver. That means he's not going to the left, he's not going to the right, he's not being tossed to and fro by what's going on in his world or in his life. He's staying straight ahead. Some of you who know Genesis well will probably remember this story of when God tells Abraham that he and Sarah will still conceive and bear a child even in their old age. And what does Abraham do? He laughs. Does that sound like someone filled with faith to you? I think he really thought God was joking with him. But Paul's point is that even though we may think Abraham had his doubts, that's okay because what Paul is proclaiming is that overall in the big picture, Abraham maintained a firm conviction of God's promise and acted on it. He may have had his momentary doubts, but they were momentary. And were always overcome by his faith in the God who had promised. And Paul tells us here that Abraham glorified God. He glorified Him because He took Him at His word 
and remain faithful as Hebrews 11 teaches. This helps us to see that Abraham's situation here was not so much a test of circumstances. It wasn't even a test of time. You know, I'm going to make you wait 40 or 50 or 60 years or however much time it is before you have a child, before you have an heir. It's not even a a test of historical proof. Rather, it's a test of how big is his God. You know, sometimes that's what's happening in your life and in mine. God puts us in a situation where we're very uncomfortable. And we're supposed to find out if we really have a big God or not. Abraham believed this God to be the God of the impossible. He's the kind of God who can give life to the dead. He can bring into existence things that don't even exist. And as we look at Abraham's example, we wonder, how are we able to live with that kind of faith? How can you and I go out tomorrow and live with that kind of faith? We do it by keeping our eyes fixed on the proper example. And let me illustrate what I mean by that by talking about something we're all going to start doing here in another month or so, and that's to mow our yards. You know, if you mow your yard at home, you make your first lap, however you do it, and if you get off a little bit, you know, get a little bit crooked, that's just going to be amplified more and more the more laps you make. Oftentimes mow round and round our house because that's the easiest way to mow and it's the quickest and it looks okay. But if I do that all season long, all of a sudden you can see the tracks where my tractor goes. And so I try and protect the grass and to do that, I sometimes mow in a checkerboard pattern. You know, like you see on baseball fields. Some people are prideful and do that every week. Uh, I don't do it every week because I don't have that much time because to do that, I have to mow long, straight lines. And I've learned the hard way that if you look at the front tire of your tractor or even 10 feet ahead of your front tire, your straight line is going to look kind of like a lazy snake. Instead, what I have to do is look at a spot across the street, way out there and pick that spot and drive toward it. And the lines are straight. This principle is given in Scripture in Hebrews 12, where after talking about all those people who live by faith in chapter 11, Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Isaac, Gideon, Barak, Samson, all that, He begins chapter 12 by saying, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the goal. If we want to follow Abraham's example and not waver in our faith and our our sight must be fixed firmly upon Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's promised 
unto us. You see, faith is not powerful in and of itself. But it's powerful because of the one in whom we've placed our faith. The word and promise we've trusted because God's word and God's promise is faithful and He is faithful. Speaking of Jesus, look at what Paul says in verse 23. But the words that was counted to Him were not written for His sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and resurrected for our justification. Notice how Paul obviously is talking about the importance of Christ's work on the cross, but he's also talking about the importance of Scripture. These words were written for our sake. These words in Genesis... Paul makes much the same point in 1 Corinthians 10 when in speaking of the stories of the children of Israel, he declares that these things happened to them as a warning, but they were written down for our instruction. They were written down in Scripture so that we might learn from them. And the same is true when it comes to this good news about Abraham. What was written was not just for his sake, but ours only. You see, we as readers are placed right into the text here in Romans 4. And we see right at this juncture, once again, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, Paul says, was delivered up. Delivered up by whom? Delivered up by God. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was delivered for our trespasses. This means we owe God a debt for our sins that we could not pay. The law couldn't help us. It only reveals our sins. Our parents and their faith, they couldn't help us. Any good thing, any good work, any righteousness that we tried to do couldn't help us. But God, who's both just and merciful, sent His Son to pay for our sins. It's like the old hymn says, Jesus paid it all. He paid it all on the cross. This is what Paul is talking about in Colossians 2 when he says, having forgiven us all our trespasses, having canceled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus did pay it all. And all to him we owe. And then on the third day, God's power raised him from the dead. Just as Abraham believed this God who could bring the dead back to life, you see what Paul is saying here? That you and I have the same opportunity as God's Holy Spirit warms our hearts and speaks the truth of the gospel to us. The gospel which certainly includes a payment for our sins that Jesus makes in yielding up His body on the cross, but a gospel that is worthless without the good news of Easter, toward which we're moving through this entire season of Lent. You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is in vain without the resurrection. It's all in vain.
before he raised her brother back to life. Jesus once said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. One of the great I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of impossible to me. Whoever lives and believes shall never die. You see, the point is, Jesus still asks the same question. The same question he asked of Martha that day when he made that great statement. He said all of that. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus still asks the same question today. It's the same kind of question that Abraham had. Do we believe in the God of the impossible? Is our God that tremendous that He can give us life forevermore with Him through Jesus who is the resurrection and the life? May it be so that we do believe in that God of the impossible for His honor and glory. Amen. Amen.